as our church. Uh, let's open in a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive into it. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we thank you for bringing heaven to us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for the cross and for the gospel in which reconciliation from the conflict humanity has with divinity might be resolved. And Father, from the grace that comes through that to resolve all the challenges that we face in our lives. Father, we pray today that you would come and be the shepherd of this house, that you would teach us your word, that you would instruct us, equip us for the work of the ministry that you set out for us to do from ages past. Father, we thank you for each one that is gathered here together. Would you give them attentive minds and open hearts, receptive soil for the seed of your word? God, if there's one here today that has not trusted the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, Lord, would today be the day of salvation for that person? Would you drag them from darkness to light as you once did so many of us in this room? Father, this is your time, and so, God, as we handle these difficult truths, God, would you just not make us shy away from the hard stuff, but help us to embrace it and let it transform us for the good of our sanctification and for your glory. Father, this is your word, so come and be the teacher and the pastor. We beg that in the strong name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen. Uh, so glad you're with us. Uh, we've been walking through the book of Ecclesiastes. We've recently started it. And we found ourselves already in chapter 2, so comparing it to our Mark series, we're at light speed, brothers and sisters. Uh, so if you've got a Bible, uh, turn it to Ecclesiastes, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. If you have to use the thumbnails, we get no shame in that, all right? Um, as we kind of open up and kind of lead into it, if you haven't been with us so far, uh, Ecclesiastes has kind of been uh, looking at a walk at the dark side and kind of looking at things from a secular perspective. One way that I would even talk about the way Ecclesiastes works is how we navigate our cars. Because back in the day, my grandfather could drive from Oklahoma to Cleveland and he knew every major highway between here and there and he used paper maps like a barbarian. All right? And then th this kind of evolved into some of us that are younger. Do you remember the, the website MapQuest? And we would print off, if you had locations, you had to print off every one. If you made an alternate route, good luck. We just navigated with sheets of paper like pirates between locations. Then we got, as technology developed, into the GPS game. And, and here's the thing, depending on whether you use Google Maps or Apple Maps, you go to a place and you tap it in. Many of us don't know the names of roads anymore because you just put the address in and it tells you where to go. We've never loved being bossed around so much in our whole life. And you put that in. But what happens if you're in a major city that you're not from and you miss your exit? Right? All of a sudden, Siri like, has a conniption. All right? She just kind of freaks out and spazzes out and it's trying to reroute you through all this stuff because you missed your exit. And here's the thing. You can miss one exit on a GPS and it puts you into a labyrinth of trying to course correct the mistake that you made. And that's exactly what the book of Ecclesiastes is. It's a book telling you that if you miss your exit, if you get off of the right path, 
it's going to get messy and you might find yourself in the hood. And so Solomon is talking about all the ways in his life where he misses it. He just gets off of the path. And he's going to try to steer you and encourage you to stay on the path with God by pointing out how all the other paths go miserably wrong. That's that's, that's, that's the book. Now, we started this, and he introduces himself as the preacher. And that's where the book of Ecclesiastes gets its name. Where we say ecclesia is the church in Greek, and ecclesia, or Ecclesiastes, is the one who gathers the church. It's the preacher, the teacher. But he's much more like a philosophy professor who's just going to poke and prod at the things that you build your life on. Martin Lloyd-Jones famously said that preaching is logic on fire. And he's going to come and try to deconstruct all the false hopes that you have and that you built your life on that he might usher you and shove you in the direction of the true hope found in Jesus Christ. The book of Ecclesiastes teaches from silhouettes. It's not that it's just always going to be apparent like God is the truth. He's going to talk about all the things that are the lie. And we kind of said it like this, is that he, he's talking not, not about God exists in like a modern atheistic argument, but does God matter? Does he matter to your life? Sort of the idea of John Lennon's song, Imagine. Imagine there's no government or war or life and death or heaven and hell. Just imagine. It's always celebrities singing it. So every time I factor when I hear Imagine now. But like John Lennon says, you know, there's no heaven, no hell, no nothing. It's just this secular, materialistic universe. And Solomon is going to say, if that was the case, John Lennon, it would be hell on earth. It's the kind of misery that Americans walk around with every day trying to dope out of their mind with antidepressants. It's the meaninglessness that shrouds your neighbors and my neighbors. Where they run from one thing to the next to fill a God-shaped hole that they're not going to fix. And this is, this is where Solomon comes in and tries to teach us. And I said there's two major keys that are going to be prevalent. And you can see it all through the book. One major key is this phrase, under the sun. That's his way of saying, I want to look at things from a secular perspective. I'm going to take your worldview on as though God doesn't exist or God's not involved. And let's just break that down and see how that goes for people. So it's this idea that under the sun is the ecosystem that doesn't include heaven or what's beyond or what's transcendent. But it's what's down here. It's Monday morning and paying taxes and taking your kids to soccer practice. It's just living life on the rat wheel. Hamster wheel. A hamster is a rat. A wheel for a rodent. The second thing is the word havel, which is, oh, I about fell fell off and died. Um, Is the second word is the word havel. Havel is translated in many Bibles as vanity or meaninglessness. We said there's a literal translation of this, which is vapor or smoke. Havel is, is something that's like hard to grasp. It's like the wind. 38 times it's going to be throughout this book. But it also means figuratively something transient, something that doesn't stick. It's like contrasted with that which is heavenly and eternal and lasting. Havel is like, it's not that it's automatically bad, but it's just not, it's not the it that you're looking for. And so he's going to call, it's like Havel is kind of vanity all over this thing. Then we, we kind of talked about in the first chapter 
uh, what's happening there. And then at the end of it, he actually goes at this thing that seems super curious. He talks about how wisdom is Havel. And that, that kind of makes us trip here for a minute, right? How is wisdom going to be vain? I thought wisdom is good. And again, he's talking about earthly or worldly wisdom under the sun. And we said wisdom's kind of hard to define with one word. It's cleverness, it's skillfulness, it's smarts, it's intelligence. It's better described as what does wisdom do. It's an action word. Wisdom fixes things. And he says, if you're under the sun without the eternal, and you're the type A person that's got to be in control of everything and fix everything, wisdom is eventually going to vex you. Because there's going to be things inside of you that are crooked that you can't fix. There's going to be, and we talked about this, that which is lacking can't be counted. You don't keep count of even the sins you had today. You don't have a 4,706 count of sins last week or the last 10 years or your life. If you don't even know how you fall short of the glory of God, how could you possibly know how to compensate for that? So come on, type A fixers, how are you going to make enough to pay back God for the glory that your sin has robbed from Him? There is a way in which earthly wisdom, when you try to build your tower of Babel back to God, will vex you. And he says, with more wisdom and understanding, it is going to be sorrowful for your soul. And so, again, Solomon as Mark Twain says, everybody can be an example, even if it's a bad one. Mark, the problem that he's going to, he's going to use his own life as an illustration. And he's the guy with the most wisdom as we talked last week. So, for some of you that went to like public school, what are you going to do? If the guy that was given wisdom from God said, I couldn't figure out how to fix myself. What's the community college in here going to do? Right? And this is the point of Ecclesiastes. He's trying to dash your hopes against the rock that is Christ. That you might build a foundation on something other than sinking sand. So if, if, if last week, if it was sometimes, uh, you know, maybe we've, we've talked before about the problem of pain. Like, even as our brother Brian um, shared at the men's thing yesterday just talking about how the problem of pain was a huge part of his story and, and about how God actually educated him in sovereignty and his story and the value of his life and, and those sorts of things. If the problem of pain is a legitimate thing we deal with as Christians, what Solomon's going to do in verse 1 through 11 in this, he's going to deal with the problem of pleasure. He's going to deal with the problem of pleasure. Now, pleasure is a good thing. Pleasure is something given by God, meant to point to God's goodness and to heaven. But again, if we're just under the sun here, and we make pleasure here on earth as its own heaven, it becomes a hell. Amen or oh me? So, here's what he's going to say in, in verse 1. He's going to say, I'm, I tested. He's going to enter into the scientific laboratory, and he is going to be both the test subject and the researcher, and he's going to pump into his heart every pleasure he can find. And he's going to see, see where that takes him. He's kind of like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, both the subject and the researcher. 
And then in 2.10, it's going to lay out that he literally says he fed his heart whatever pleasure his eyes could find. And here's what his conclusion is. And just right up front, it ruined him. It ruined him. The same thing that everybody in here knows what giving your kids everything they ask for will ruin them. And every kid in here just disagrees with that. Um, so I was at the gym um, this last week, and there's some young guys in there in their 20s, young bucks, and we were just kind of talking about life, and uh, they're not believers, very, almost even mocking towards Christianity, but we have a good relationship, and, and they, they oftentimes ask me spiritual questions, and they were kind of joking about the fact that I'm better at this one sport than them is because I love Jesus, and I almost Tim Tebowed them and been like, that's right, um, or it's the fact that I weigh 60 pounds more than you. Either way, all right? And so they, they're just talking about this, and they kind of joke that if they knew that following Jesus would make them better at this sport we both do, they would sign up for Jesus today. And I said, the, the tragedy of that is that God might actually give you being good at that, and you would miss out on God. Because God is not means to an end. He is the end himself. See, the problem... I told these guys, I said, the problem is, you think of God as a vehicle to get some other God that you want. God himself is all goodness, all wisdom, all beauty, all righteousness. There's no treasure in the universe better than him. And so in the moment that you try to use him to get something, you've completely missed Christianity. Furthermore, one of the things that I said, is th- th- so they asked me, they said, well, you don't ever pray for stuff, like, to get stronger or faster or more money or all this stuff. And I say, I have no problem asking God to bless me with things, but more important is that I pray for God's will to be done. Because here's the fact. If I prayed right now for God to give me a million dollars, a million dollars might ruin me. And you don't believe that. I believe that. Come on now. You pray for the Cadillac. I pray for a new job. I pray for a new spouse. I pray for... There's lots of things we can ask God for that if he gave it to us might ruin us. Matter of fact, the most mature Christians that I know in my life are not people walking around asking for prosperity. They are walking around saying, God, whether good or ill comes to me, blessed be your name, thy will be done. They had no mainframe for this because their concept of Christianity was the prosperity gospel and basically just baptizing American consumerism. The idea that somebody loves God for God and not for what God gives became a point where we could talk about truth now. And here's the deal. The same reality is for Solomon. Some things we want for ourselves that we said if we only had blank would absolutely ruin you. And it is God's graciousness that he doesn't give some of us fools what we ask for. That's, that's what we're getting into. So he's going to test himself with pleasure, and he's going to say, I denied myself nothing. Now, for us, here's why Solomon is helpful for us in this. Because you, you can't do that. You ain't got the money, the power, or the resources. Let's just be honest. You're like, I'm an American. I can do anything. No, you can't. Right? Like, he's actually got the resources To test and deny himself nothing. Most of us on the path of pleasure that we're on 
if it doesn't satisfy us when we chase after the pleasure we want, we tell ourselves it's because we haven't went further down the path of pleasure. If we only had more of it, and if we went further down that path, it would satisfy us in ways that it's currently not satisfying us. We never ask the question whether the path of pleasure that we're on is right to begin with. But what he's going to do is take the path that we're on all the way. He's going to skin it all nine yards and then come back to us and say, it's not going to give you what you think it's going to give you. And so, um, he just is going to lay out for us that pleasure is going to make promises on the front end that it cannot keep. And as a thesis for what I want to talk about today, pleasure fails to give your soul what it is really looking for, and that is transcendence. Because pleasure under the sun never transcends to something heavenly and eternal that your soul, created for God, longs for. So, just pump into it whatever you want, and Solomon's going to say it's just not going to get there. You, You can buy everything on Amazon that you want. It's not getting you there. This spoiler alert. So there, there was a, a guy that asked a, a, a retailer. So if you, you know about luxury items, he came to this, the shop and he's like, you, you charge for the same like, items 20 times more than what you could get it at Walmart. How do you, just go downtown Durango and try to buy like a rug or a lamp. You'll get the idea. Okay? 20 times more than what you can get it at Walmart. How, how do you get away with this highway robbery? And he says, our boutique doesn't sell products, we sell the dream. Our products have dream infused in them. And so when people come in here, they're not just buying lipstick or watches. They're not buying couches. They're, you're selling them on the dream. And Solomon is going to say, this is the vanity Led Zeppelin would say, there is no stairway to heaven in shops in Fifth Avenue. It's the same thing. Now, let's look at the text and then we'll kind of go piece by piece. Because he, he, he puts in his heart some very specific things and I want to, to think about them. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. That's how I read it in my mind. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? Now, pause. First and foremost, there's nothing wrong with laughter. The Bible says that laughter is good for the heart like medicine. Science is going to say it decreases stress. It's good for your hormonal levels. Like Laughter is just like this God-given remedy for so many things. Laughter is a good thing, a God-created thing. You know, if I was still in the charismatic church, I'd tell you to look to your neighbor and say, God got a sense of humor. Right? Humor is a great thing. Like for me and my wife, it's a big part of our marriage. Like one of the things we love the most is just getting together and making fun of people. All right? Have you, ever, have you ever sat with a baby and heard a baby laugh at you? That's awesome. Right? Is there anything more... Just, like, if you could just bottle a baby's laughter, and it's got the dream in it, right? Um, 
Laughter's this, this good thing. Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher, was, was chided and chastised because he used too much humor in his sermons. And he said, if you only knew how, mu- how much I held back, you would commend me. Right? Like, it's, it's, this, it's a good thing for us to do this. Like, you hear a great joke, you've been around good friends. Laughter and pleasure used in the, the, this verse are not synonymous terms, which I found really interesting. One of them is kind of uptown pleasure-seeking. The other one's kind of downtown pleasure-seeking. Laughter, as this word, can have all kinds of connotations of kind of like um, frat party, orgy, jello shots, getting smashed, keg stand, Vegas road trip. That's that, that's that one. I mean, it's, it's going to the club. Pleasure, as he kind of contrasts it, is more of a word that has to do with like refinement. Um, you got good taste. You buy art, limited edition, exclusive VIP. If you think about it two different ways, some people approach pleasure um, with dirt floors and some with marble floors. Some go after this, you know, they work all week for the weekend. Some work 40 years for their retirement, and some work just from vacation to vacation. So while laughter is a good thing, he, he just, he says it's, it's not going to last. It's Havel. And have you ever told the same joke to one person twice and you forgot you told it to them once? And the second time they just didn't laugh? Because they're like, you need to get your memory checked. Right? Is it, why is the joke not funny the second time? It was a smash the first time. Because of Havel. It's, 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 just, it's just fading really quick. And Solomon's like, I went and bought Comedy Central. I hired all the comedians. They lived at my house. Jim Gaffigan every night with dinner. Right? Like, I, I brought it all in. I had all the meme makers make the best memes about all my political opponents. And, and it just kind of got old. And it's because laughter, church, fr- frivolity and Babylon B satire can't add meaning to your life. Is it a beautiful distraction? And, and does it have its place under the... Absolutely. But it is dangerous to put constant entertainment as the purpose and center of your life. You know how I know that? Because Robin Williams killed himself. Because he was surrounded by people that only loved him. He had money like nobody in here even understands money. He lived a constant party and he couldn't handle it. And his life was meaningless. Jim Carrey was interviewed by a major uh, news outing and they asked him how he's doing and he says, I live constantly in a low level despair. Most people would put Jim Carrey, top four comedians all time. And he walks around when he's not on a stage in a low level of despair. Some of the most hilarious comedians that you've laughed at 
live behind closed doors in dark, depressed cages. Why? Because frivolity cannot carry and bear the weight of your worship and your meaning. It can't. As important and beautiful as a God-ordained thing it is, if you make it your God, it can't handle the weight. Go, go to the next verse and look what he does next. I search, verse 3, with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still being guiding me with wisdom. That is, when he threw a party, he did it with wisdom. He did it all the way. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. This is him going YOLO. You only got one life, so we're going to drink it to the bottom. We're going to party to the tip top. We drank the breweries in Durango dry. Impossible, you say. Solomon did it. And so he's going to switch here and says, well, if comedy doesn't do it, then what about alcohol? What about substances? Right? When we drink alcohol, we say cheers with hopes that it will cheer our souls. It's interesting, the French say, a votre santé, which means to your health. We say cheers, they say to your health. I think they're lying maybe more than us. It's like, nobody here thinks this is good for our health. At the quantity, we drink it. So here's what Solomon says. I was in the 1980s, and I was in every beer commercial where everybody's having the time of their life. I, I, I took every drink that I wanted. I became a wino. I had whiskey, margs, mixed drinks, beer. Now we can say here that in the Bible, wine has its place. It was a part of the sacrificial system. It's a picture in the New Testament of the wedding feast to come. We can say it has its place. But when you make it the point of your life, couldn't some of us in here ourselves or talk about family members we have that have destroyed their lives with alcohol? Nobody knows any people like that? Or, or like, listen to the way, like, put your finger on the pulse of our culture. And listen to country music. Right? How do we talk about alcohol? Little Big Town has a song called Day Drinking. Brad Paisley, alcohol. Dirks Bentley, drunk on a plane. I think that's the sequel to Snakes on a Plane. Merle Haggard, I think I'll just stay here and drink. Travis Tritt, the whiskey ain't working. Midland, drinking problem. Kenny Chesney, you and tequila. Right? George Jones, white lightning. Luke Bryant, drink a beer. Toby Keith, beer for my horses. They're getting the animals drunk, people. He's also from Oklahoma, so that's <clears throat> neither here nor there. Eric Church, Copeland. Jim, Jack, and Hank by Alan Jackson. Brooks and Dunn, Beer 30. Listen, I didn't want to use all the church's printer paper to get all the country songs with alcohol in them. But we get it, right? Like we, we just live for the weekend. And so he's saying, look, drink until it's gone. And then come see me. Like I, I, I did college ministry for 10 years. And one of the things that I, I told college students that just were with do I follow God or do I go party at some point I'm like just just take it to the nines man 
drink until there's no alcohol left. Go all the way. Right? Then tell me that your life has purpose and meaning and that you're better off. Like at some point, I'm not going to cage a college student to a tree to have them pursue a God that they don't love more than beer. So go. Tell me how that God is. Does the God of alcohol really love you? Because here's the thing that I've discovered. I've never seen somebody hungover, hanging over a toilet, vomiting their guts out, say, I found the meaning of life. So go do it. Solomon's like, I drank until France had no more wine. And it didn't fix. It, it, it at best gave me a blackout to escape from the trauma of what I, it made me escape from life. It didn't give me life. And there's tons of us in here that would testify to that. Amen? And so what he's trying to say is, it can't bear the weight of glory you were created for. Now, listen, we can eat and drink and joke to the glory of God, but if you get that disordered and you make that your God, you will end up in rehab real quick. Amen? Because it's a disordered love. Then he goes to verse 4. This hits a little bit closer to home. I made great works. Like I did things. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. Parks? And planted them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. What is he saying here? He's like, you th- some of us in here think that real estate, hobbies, projects are going to be the thing that makes us feel like our life has meaning. Like if you just had this house instead of that house, you would finally feel at home somewhere. Like if you just had more land, right? If you just had a condo, a she shed, a hunting lodge, a getaway home, a beach house, a bigger house, a new kitchen, a new bathroom, right? Bigger yard, fewer neighbors, amen? If I just had it, if I had just a different place, but our brother got palaces that got palaces inside of them. He's got more houses than we got people in this room. And he says, if the, if like many of us, the place that I live does not make me feel at home and it doesn't satisfy me. And doesn't our culture of remodeling shows and house buying shows and magazines kind of make this worse in us? We watch Fixer Upper and we're like, you know what? I do need to get it in an argument with my wife for eight months fixing up a house. And we kind of want to get in on that. You know what I need is a project. I bet if I go to Lowe's, they'll help me. You watch these shows and you see somebody else living somewhere else, and you're like, if I just lived somewhere else, then I would feel better. And you watch that show and... She sharpens pencils for a living and he raises snails and they got a $4 million budget. And you're like, what am I doing with my life? 
I want to live on a beach. Winter's coming. Right? Listen. Imagine unlimited budget and the ability to live anywhere. And church, I'm going to tell you the truth. It still won't fix you. Because wherever you move to, you still going to be there. It won't fix you. The grass is greener where you water it. Move wherever you want. Build as big a house as you want. It won't fix you. Add another project. The reason why it won't fix you is that because those places that you might move under the sun without God were never meant to be your forever home. They were never meant to be your forever home. Home is where your loved ones are. And how could you possibly be home without the chief love, the creator of the universe, who created you and loved you and sent Jesus to die for you? How could you ever find a home in a place where you don't got that sorted? Go anywhere you want. No place will feel like home without the Father. I'd argue this, but you can have the Father like many of our brothers and sisters do down in Guatemala, and you can have a shack, and it feel like a mansion. I'm not going to lie, when the thunderstorm hit last night, I, th- I thanked God for a roof. I, th- I think, Lord, I'm inside of this lightning storm. Anybody else thankful? Here's the deal. We've all been looking for a glorious place ever since we got kicked out of the garden and the good home that God had had for us in the beginning. We've all been looking for a good place. And this is why Jesus comes in the New Testament and says, I go to prepare a place for you. Not a temporary place with a high interest rate that you've got to fix up. This baby going to be debt free because Jesus paid it all. Amen? Church, you are not building more houses or better houses or palaces like Solomon. Just give up on real estate doing it for you. Do you realize that the brother also said that he, plant, he planted a few things? Had a couple projects going on? You got a potted plant in your home that you barely keep alive. You have a garden out back that can't even feed your own family. Right? It's not diversified. You got 4,000 cucumbers and like no other plants. You're like, you're barely keeping that alive. And, and you think that if you just added four or five more hobbies or four or five more projects, you would be fine. Our dude planted national forests. Like he, he's like, oh, I built Yosemite. What are, what are you doing? You got a koi pond from Home Depot. Right? You gotta, what are you going to do? You're going to put a fire pit out back? I dug Vallecito. To water my national forest that I had going on. I had fruit trees with any time I wanted, just go out there. You think that putting your garden is going to replace what you lost in Eden. That's hilarious. Verse 7. I bought male and female slaves. I don't know what you can purchase above people. 
and had slaves that were born in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks. It's like he living the FFA dream right now. More than any who had been in before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I'll talk more about that to come. I got singers. Adele lived at his house. Both men and women and many concubines. Let your parents explain what that means, kids. The delights of the sons of men. Let's break this down. He says, I bought people. We talked about this last week. Somewhere between possibly 10,000 and 30,000 people were his personal staff. Right? So if you go to a Rockies home game, that's a bad illustration. If you go to a place where there's 10 to 30,000 people, <laughs> the Broncos game five minutes before it's over. All right. That's that brother's staff meeting of people attending him. Now, here's what you think. If I only had the right people around me, then I would be successful, complete, and joyful. If I just had enough, come on ladies, if I just had enough people serving my house, cleaning it, cooking for it, raising these kids, right? If I just had the right staff around me to help me, my, I would, I'd be good. The dude had ten to 30,000 people. If God doesn't help you, you can have a whole army of Downton Abbey butlers serving you, and you still would be a mess. Animals, you want animals? He talked about herds and flocks. All you need is a dog, right? Some of the families in here, please don't bring this up. You just need man's best friend. You need some animals in your life, right? Some of you need goats, I can tell. You need a cat because you don't serve God, so you've got to serve something, so you get a cat. Because that is a clearly one-directional relationship. Any of you grew up and thought that you needed a pony? You want a pony? He's got 4,000 stalls for chariots. He's got more cars than Jay Leno. 12,000 horses, which by the way, in order for him to do this experiment on feeding things into his heart, you know he had, to, he had to violate the kingly command in Deuteronomy that kings would not do this. That they wouldn't just hoard and hoard and hoard. 12,000 horses. He owned the Fort Worth Stockyard, the Yellowstone, and the San Diego Zoo in his backyard. But all you need is chickens. And then you're going you're gonna to get it straight. Wait, if you need eggs, the wormers have extras. Um, gold, verse 8. Some estimate that his horses alone were worth 480,000 pieces of gold. That's not pieces of money. That's pieces of gold. He had so much silver inside the kingdom flowing in. And I'm going to look at this in future weeks about how they amassed this much wealth. He had so much silver that it de it's called inflation. There was too much, it devalued it to where it became trinkets. He made everything he had out of gold because silver, it says in the Bible, became worth nothing in his kingdom. So you just need more money, right? He had 500 gold shields that he hung in his man cave. His throne was made out of ivory and gold. So your dad chair 
maybe a posturepedic, but he ain't living up to it. He bought bands and artists and entertainers. He didn't hire them to come in. He owned them. He didn't go to Red Rocks. Red Rocks came to him. He was constantly stimulated by entertainment. And yet you think that four or five more Netflix shows and you're going to feel better about your life. When in truth, the more we pump that entertainment in with no discretion, the more it ruins us. Anybody found that out yet? This other one is concubines. Talks about, we always talk about like 700 wives and 300 concubines. He can meet with a different woman for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for nearly a year. We joked last week about if any of these ladies had quality time as their love language, good luck. 300 concubines. This was equivalent to having a side chick, a prostitute. Somebody that he employed for his personal pleasure. He lived many men's under the sun exact dream. These women dolled themselves up and it was their job to be ready at a moment to serve any need that he had and be completely prepared at his bidding to come and do that. He lived a pornographic experience that many people on their phones have exactly the same access to. And so many of us think if we only had more sex or sex with more people or different people, it would somehow satisfy the longing of our soul. And he says, it made me worse. It made him worse. So here's the thing. Let's summarize. What, what, what has been the argument of this? It answers the question for you. If I only had blank, then I would be good. And, and honestly, church, if we answer that with anything but Jesus, our life is going to be a flop. If I only had his money, his sexual partners, his staff, his power, his projects, his house, his garden, then, then I would be good and blessed and happy and set and satisfied. Despite the fact that rich celebrities in our own culture might be the most miserable people you know. Right? They got all the money and the fame and maybe the most miserable people you know. I mean, this brother had athletes that wanted his autograph. Kids wrote reports about him. His image was the one he had. And he said all of that amassed didn't do for me what he's going to get to at the end, a relationship with God did. So last point and then we're done, okay? This gets into a conversation about a word we use all the time, but we don't think about. And that is the word addiction. See, when, when we talk about these things, we say it's, they're not bad themselves. They're bad if you get addicted to them. But why do humans, this is just a question, why do humans, why do we even get addicted? Why, why do we take things 
that are temporary and try to just more and more. One thing that I would say about this is that uh, addiction counselors say this is part of the problem. Is that when you're in a cycle of addiction, what is so hard to break is that when somebody gets their first drunk or their first high or their first hit of pleasure from addiction, the next time when they go round two and they come back to that substance or that thing, it takes more of it to get back to the first high that they got from the pleasure the first go around. So it's almost like a, a death spiral. Because to get back to the ghost feeling of pleasure I got the first time, I need more. And then the third time, I need even more than that. And the fourth time, more than that. And the thing that I'm going after can't give me more. It's exhaustible. It's limited. It's finite. It's vanity. It's like trying to grab smoke. And addiction counselors would say that's part of the problem is that it takes more and more and more to get back to even the ghost of an idea of what that first pleasure found like. And so the more we go after physical pleasure, it takes us further and further from heaven and takes us deeper and deeper into hell. Because physical pleasure can point us to the goodness of God and it can point us to heaven but it can never be God and it can never be heaven it will never provide for our souls the transcendence and the beauty and the goodness that reside with God alone and that's not found under the sun that's found with him your transcendence your meaning and your life when you Try to find them in under the sun, transient pleasures will slip through your fingers like wind. Here's how I would put it. It's a wild goose chase with no goose. It's a wild goose chase with no goose. Church, you will never find any dead rich men with a wind collection. You will never find any dead rich men with a wind collection. Because it's vanity. But here's, here's what we know from this. While pleasure can't become a God and can't satisfy our soul, Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And you'll find peace for your souls. Come to me. Not that bottle. Not four or five more projects. Come to me. The one from heaven who descended that you might have something transcendent in life evermore. Let me pray for you. If you're here and you are white knuckle grasping the smoke like Solomon once did. I just want to pray for you that you would let go of that. Whether it's what you're getting from work, what you're trying to get from a relationship other than that with God, what you're trying to get from money or power or sex or entertainment, would you let go of it? 
that you might grasp hold of God in ways that are eternal. That's my prayer for you. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come, God, and change hearts in this room that they may let go of that which is transient, that which is vapor, that which does not last, that, that might, they might be firmly clasped by you who is eternal. And so come, come and work in hearts. Come and, and show us the way out. Cause us to let go. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters with abiding sin that they might repent and trust the gospel where their hope is found eternally secure. God, we know you're good for it and so we come in faith trusting you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody say